As this year comes to a close, we've been looking back at some of our favorite stateside episodes from 2022. This one, the one that you're about to hear, hits the ball out of the park. It's all about the Michigan life and legacy of Malcolm X. This is a rerun. And for this episode, I'm passing the mic off to our executive producer, Laura Weber Davis. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing. And some There's a question that's been gnawing at me most of my adult life, and one that I ask myself again every February as Black History Month revisits us, and we, Michiganders writ large, spend time contemplating beautiful quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. And the question is this. Why aren't we talking about Malcolm X? And it will take black nationalism that to bring about the freedom of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country where we have suffered colonialism for the past 400 years. After all, he grew up in the Lansing area. Being a Michigander shaped his early view of the world and would carry forward to many of his political beliefs. This is Stateside. I'm Laura Weber Davis, in for April Bear. Lansing wasn't the only city here with connections to Malcolm X. He also had deep ties in Detroit. That's where writer and activist Herb Boyd first met the civil rights leader. Well, for me, in terms of my political development, uh, the kind of consciousness that I've had in, in that regard, it all pretty much started with Malcolm X. Stateside host April Bear talked to Boyd in the summer of 2020 about how his time with Malcolm X shaped his life in activism. If you go back to when I was 19, 20 years of age and, and really interested in developing myself as an intellectual, as a writer, you know, Malcolm came into my life. And uh, whenever he visited uh, Detroit, you know, after I had uh, been introduced to the Nation of Islam, I made it my business to be there to hear him. So when when he um, was scheduled to come to Detroit on February the 14th, 1965, to speak at Ford Auditorium, at that time I was working at Dodge, Maine, in Hamtramck, and working the graveyard ship, as they call it. And when I heard that his house had been firebombed earlier that morning, I just took it for granted that Malcolm would not be coming to Detroit. Well, lo and behold, much to my uh, chagrin, he arrived and spoke at Ford Auditorium. And friends of mine told me that they could smell the smoke on him because all he could salvage from his house in East Helmhurst was what he had on. And so I made my mind, April, at that point, that what I was going to do, if he could go through all of that in in the early morning hours of the 14th and get on a plane and come to Detroit, you know, I'm going to New York. And then within days of my preparation to depart, he was assassinated on the 21st, a week after his house was firebombed. Mm. Oh, I say, my goodness, you know, I just couldn't bear to, to go to the funeral at that time. Um, I made it my business to say, okay, I'm going to continue his journey and, and get my education together. <laughs> Distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends and enemies. I want to point out first that I'm very happy to be here this evening. And I'm thankful for the invitation to come here to Detroit this evening. Uh, I was in a house last night that was bombed, my own. 
But I didn't, it didn't destroy all my clothes at all. But you know what happens when fire dashes through. They get smoky. The only thing I could get my hands on before leaving was what I have on now. And uh, it wasn't, it isn't something that made me lose confidence in what I'm doing because my wife understands and I have children from this size on down and even in their young age they understand. I think they would rather have a father or brother or whatever the situation may be who will take a stand in the face of any kind of reaction from narrow-minded people uh, rather than to compromise and later on have to grow up in shame and in disgrace. Why don't we discuss and honor this Michigander for his contributions to American society? He is a forefather of sorts, and yet few among us can say we learned anything about him in school before college. Well, a professor at Michigan State University probably noticed the dearth of the -the on-the-ground presence of Malcolm Little in his hometown of Lansing and took on a project with his students that would become an interactive map called Malcolm's Lansing, highlighting navigable points of interest in Malcolm's Michigan life. John Ernie Flessner is an associate professor in the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities at Michigan State University, and he joins us now from sabbatical in South Africa. John, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Laura. I appreciate you taking the time. So maybe I'm putting thoughts and ideas into your actual experience, but how did you and when did you notice the need for this project? I moved to Michigan in 2014 to to take a job at MSU um, in the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities where we're focused on on outreach to to communities and and teaching students about community engagement. And over an informal conversation in the copy room one day with with one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Lisa Biggs, um, she noted that that Malcolm was was from this area. And I said the same thing you said, which is, well, I'll be. I didn't didn't realize that. Um, And I study African and world history. Um, and so that inspired me to, to dig deeper into the history of Malcolm and his family in the greater Lansing area. And what I discovered was that there was very little out there on the web in terms of, of material to read about Malcolm's time here. And there was very little that was still around the Lansing area to document the places and spaces that had been important to, to Malcolm and his family. So in conjunction, um, with the good folks in the digital humanities at, at Michigan State's Leader Lab, um, I put together a course and my students were, were game to go along with it. And we, we decided to, to document that. What was the student experience like from talking to them about how they felt about putting this project together in 2015? They were a little bit nervous about putting together a website, um, especially one about a, a noted historical figure. Um, but we, we read the texts. We read the autobiography of Malcolm X. We read about some local history here in Lansing. Um, we dug into what sources were available on the web. Um, there's some, some great compendiums that come out of, say, Columbia University. Um, but even that had very, very little on, on Malcolm's time here in Lansing. And the more we dug, the more we realized that the story of the little family and Malcolm here in, in Lansing was very complex, and that it also encompassed a lot of the issues that, that still engulf our, our world today, right? This was 2015 um, in the wake of the Michael Brown and Ferguson protests um, and before the Black Lives Matter protests. But my students were, were reading this material and, and making those sorts of connections to say, 
Malcolm faced structural discrimination in his life as well as outright explicit racists. Um, you know, he faced the, the prejudices of, of the school system. The family faced the, the problems of redlining and, and couldn't buy houses in particular places. And when they did, those houses were suspiciously burned down and the Lansing Fire Department stood by without putting out the fire. Um, so, so the students, they, they quickly got into this and, and it was mostly first and second year students and I'm still a bit blown away with, with the, the, the conclusions they came to historically out of, out of the sketchy and sort of small materials that, that we had. You mentioned a couple of the points of interest that are on the map. What, what else surprised you in your research or what, what were some of the locations that you took particular interest in? Well, I think the the site of their first the the family's first house in Lansing is is really important. It's up by the neighborhood, uh, excuse me, up by the airport in the Westmont neighborhood. And somehow Malcolm's father bought five plots of land in the neighborhood, despite it having restricted covenants. Um, restrictive covenants are are built into property deeds that say properties cannot be sold to to individuals of pr- particular racial and sometimes ethnic and religious um, persuasions. And so Earl Little bought five plots of land and a house up there. Uh, the Neighborhood Association quickly took him to court and, and got an eviction notice. Um, but before that eviction notice could be served, on November 7th, 8th, 1929, the house burned to the ground. The Lansing Fire Department responded but did not put out the fire. Um, and in fact, the next day, the police arrested Malcolm's father, Earl, for possession of an unregistered firearm and brought charges of arson against him. Um, so in addition to the family house burning down, the family also had to deal with the fact that the, the patriarch of the family was arrested um, that, that morning. Um, and so that, that added to, to the trauma of that. The charges were eventually dropped, um, but the family still had to, to move around. And so they faced the struggle that most African-American families did um, during that period of trying to find housing in a city where much of the housing was off limits to them. Um, another important point is the intersection of Michigan Avenue and Detroit Street in, in Lansing, right today by, by 127. Um, this is where Earl Little was found dead on the streetcar tracks in September of 1931. And this was really a turning point in, in the family. The family was and remained very tight-knit. Um, but in the middle of the Great Depression, when their father died and the insurance companies refused to pay out, the family really struggled. Um, and it was from there that, um, of course, the narrative of the autobiography and, and Malcolm's life on the streets sort of, you know, starts um, formative experiences with white supremacy as well, because it's suspected that he was killed by, by a white supremacist group called the Black Legion. Um, so those, those are two, two interesting points that, that we found, um, but we also wanted to document the deeper story. Uh, the story of the family being split up by state social workers and Louise Little being sent to the state mental institution in Kalamazoo. Um, Obviously, this was very traumatic. Malcolm, again, writes about it in his autobiography that he dictated to Alex Haley. What he doesn't say in that autobiography is that the family remained tight and that while they were sent to you know, they were in the care of the state and they were at uh, in the foster system, they were actually cared for by family friends. And this demonstrates the, the depth of the family connections that the Little family had here in the Lansing area. 
Malcolm's mother, Louise, was from the Caribbean island of Granada. And a number of the families that took in Malcolm and his siblings were Afro-Caribbean, um, both in Mason and in the greater Lansing area. And it was these deep Afro-Caribbean connections and connections that the family had made through Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association that kept the family together even after the death of the father and the institutionalization of the mother because the siblings remained tight all the way until they died. Well, Malcolm X Street in Lansing was only designated in his name in 2010, just five years before you put this site, Malcolm's Lansing, together. Um, yes. What were the explanations before the city council that would make this designation take so long? Well, Malcolm was a controversial figure, um, especially during his years with with the Nation of Islam. He made some very controversial statements um, about race, um, also around the Jewish faith. Um, and so there are there are many people who who are very leery of Malcolm because of that. Part of that is a misreading of of the philosophy um, of black nationalism as as a racist philosophy when really it's a separatist philosophy. Uh, but part of that is because Malcolm, as national spokesperson for the Nation of Islam, was in some cases deliberately provocative. Um, and those those statements still don't don't sit well um, with with some people within the African-American community, though, Malcolm was also controversial um, because it was feared that uh, strong statements that that he was making about about the racial problems of America and and the lack of, of civil and human rights for African-Americans would get people hurt because of the backlash. You know, and so that 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 has made the legacy of Malcolm a complicated one to to this day. Unlike Dr. King, whose whose more radical statements are often ignored this time of year, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to understand Malcolm without looking at controversial statements. Um, so I think you know, going back to your early juxtaposition of of how we hear so many King um, quotations this time of year and so few Malcolm. Um, it's because Malcolm spoke more bluntly, but also because Dr. King has been sanitized as well. Um, but what I find really interesting about the story of Malcolm in Lansing and, and one way that, that might help move his legacy forward is by better understanding his parents and, and Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, because this group is calling for Black economic nationalism long before this is a popular thing. Um, and it was, it was seen by many in the black community um, and certainly most in the white community as incredibly radical. I mean, uh, you know, Marcus Garvey was, was thrown into jail by the US government and deported back to Jamaica because they saw him as such a threat. And yet the, the Universal Negro Improvement Association had chapters across the globe. Um, Malcolm's parents met through this organization and they instilled in their children these messages. And the messages of, of um, you know, Black economic nationalism were you need to be able to stand on your own two feet economically without relying on the greater white community. And that is a message that actually carries through all of Malcolm's life. Um, his time before the Nation of Islam, his time in the Nation of Islam, and his time after the Nation of Islam. And I think that when we note that that is the thread and that it was instilled in him and his siblings here in the Lansing area, 
that that might be a pathway forward for thinking about how to how to better honor the legacy of of the entire little family here in the area um, and especially Malcolm. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Let's continue now discussing the legacy of Malcolm X in Michigan. Kadada Williams is an associate professor of African-American and American history at Wayne State University, and she's also the host of a podcast called Seizing Freedom from VPM. Kadada Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and covering this topic. Yeah. So I want to know why you think it is that our larger Michigan family, we don't talk about Malcolm. I think we don't talk about Malcolm because a lot of people don't understand who he was and what he really stood for. And I think that the root of that is the fact that he was unapologetic in his love for Black people and his willingness to point out the harms of white supremacy and the moral bankruptcy at the root of it. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable today. Do you teach your students about Malcolm in your classes? I do. And more importantly, I have them read his work. Because a lot of them come with these preconceived ideas. They've been told that Malcolm hates white people or that Malcolm hated white people. And so they don't like people who hate, right? So they come with these preconceived notions of who he was and what he stood for. Um, And that, you know, and as I said, they're rooted in this fear. But when they read his work for for themselves, when they see what he stood for and what he actually said and what he tried to do, they have a much better appreciation for him as someone who believed in justice and liberty and who was willing to fight for it. How much do you find that they know about his history in the state of Michigan? Most of them don't know anything about his history in the state of Michigan. Nothing. They barely know about him. Uh, Some of the students, um, depending on their backgrounds, where they may be from, whether they are Black or white, what their politics are, some of them may know some of his Michigan history, but the vast majority don't because it's not taught. And I would imagine many, if not most of the students you're teaching um, are from Michigan and probably are surprised then to learn that, that some of the points of interest in his life were right around the corner from where they've been. They're completely shocked. And they, you know, and what we see is that it, you know, their reaction to it shifts from shock to outrage and anger and frustration with their K through 12 education. Right. And they feel like the sense of betrayal, like they have been denied knowledge that would be very useful to them. I was talking about my husband with this the other day, outraged, 
I guess I would say that I, Malcolm X is not somebody who I knew or understood or learned about in any way before college. And why is that? And, you know, he played devil's advocate with me in that a lot of what Malcolm said is not necessarily digestible for a young mind. What do you think about the the sort of age or maturity it takes to teach Malcolm and what Malcolm was saying with nuance? It depends on what you're trying to teach and for what purpose and why. So I think that Malcolm's life story and the work that he did is accessible for all ages. I think that the nature of the truths that he's delivering and the context in which he's doing it, that's where you sort of, you need to sort of think more about what's age appropriate. So I don't know that a, you know, someone in K through six needs to know all of the specific details of his, his criticism of white supremacy and the violence that Black people were experiencing in the civil rights movement and those who weren't necessarily participating in the movement, but were simply being Black in America. I think that K through six students can learn about some of that information and about his belief in and commitment to justice. I think the more specific details and the hostility that he encountered may be more appropriate at the high school level. So Malcolm's most influential years uh, were spent arguably in Harlem and also traveling. So maybe it's of little surprise that we associate him more with the East Coast than we do with the Midwest. But it was his formative years in Michigan that actually really began to shape his understanding of race and racism. And he talks a lot about the differences between Northern and Southern racism. Um, part of what he talks about in regards in, in his autobiography in regards to northern white Americans is a problem uh, that's sort of a, a two-faced quality, a smile for black neighbors, but also holding tight to white supremacy. So it's obviously less overt than southern racism and less hard to pin down. Can you talk about why the criticism criticisms of northern racism versus southern racism may have led to how we talk differently about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King these days? I think it's at the center of the erasure that we see of Malcolm's life and his work and his beliefs. One of the things that we know is that white supremacy and investments in it were nationwide. But what Northerners did, Midwesterners in particular, what they did was this. They said, we're not the South. So in response to Black people's protests, in response to their decrying the racist injustice they were experiencing in schools, in housing, in banking, on the job, what many people in the region said was, well, we're not the South, which is a really low bar if we're being honest about it. Hmm. But what it does is it sort of whistles past the realities of racism here and it shuts it down and it creates this narrative particularly amongst young people, that racism is something that happens elsewhere. It doesn't happen here. And what Malcolm's life story showed is that that is absolutely not true. It was at the very heart of many of his experiences, his formative experiences from being in school when he wanted to be a lawyer and the teacher told him he should aim, law- uh, he should aim lower to become a janitor, um, the violence that his father endured and experienced, the problems that he experienced, you know, once his mother fell ill after her, after his father's death, all of those things, including his incarceration, 
are rooted to the sort of the realities of the white power structure that existed in northern spaces just as it did in southern ones. You know, a guest we had on earlier on the program talked about how Malcolm was considered dangerous by white people and black people alike, but for different reasons at the time. Um, and partly because there was a fear that what Malcolm was saying was going to get people hurt, which uh, clearly ended up being true f- for himself specifically. Can you talk about that perception of danger that surrounded him and whether whether we can, um, I guess as a society, erase the fear that is attached with applying danger to a person? I think that what we see amongst the Black folks who were afraid is their real understanding of how white supremacy works and how speaking out about it, how challenging it, how pointing out the moral bankruptcy at the root of it does bring down the white power structure on you and those in your orbit. And so for Black folks, there is consistently the agreement, the understanding. I mean, even people like Martin Luther King Jr., we're very clear in acknowledging that he and Malcolm were on the same page on a lot of issues. They just spoke about it differently. Malcolm was more willing, he was more willing to sort of make it plain. He wasn't going to sugarcoat the language to make racist white people feel comfortable. He just wasn't going to do that. And what people who loved and cared about him and who were afraid for him, what they knew was that that only incentivized people to hurt him. Is it possible to erase on the other side of the coin, erase the the perception of danger that surrounds powerful black orators like Malcolm X and Detroit Mayor Coleman Young? There have been historically for white populations, fear attached to and frustration or anger uh, attached to these figures. Is it possible now to, when we relitigate history to erase that perception of danger for white people? Well, I think what we have to do is confront the reality of what's going on here. And what I mean by that is that a lot of this fear is manufactured. And it is a tool that has historically and continues to legitimize white supremacy. And so the truth of the matter is that none of these Black men or Black women had the power to do white people any harm at all. And even when they are put in positions of power like Coleman Young was, there was nothing that he did that harmed white people other than harming their sense of superiority over him. Right. He doesn't drive all of the white residents of the city out of their homes. He doesn't deny them their jobs, deny them access to education or health care. He doesn't do any of that. And what's also clear is that he had no intention. He had no interest in doing that. So a lot of this is this manufactured fear of black people doing their part to make sure that everyone has access to freedom, liberty and justice for all. And this fear is by people who actually don't believe in it. Their actions and this manufactured fear about a Black man or a Black woman in power, this fear is rooted in their belief that Black people shouldn't have access to these things and that these are only meant for white people. 
So in order to address this, when we talk about it, we need to be honest about what this is and how it worked historically to shut down, to make people afraid of um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and make them afraid of people like Coleman Young and other Black people today who are aspiring to uh, bring more liberty, more justice, and more freedom to not just only African-Americans, but to all Americans. So we need to be honest about what this is and how it's part of the game that white supremacists often play. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes ready for streaming at michiganradio.org. Today's pod was produced by Erin Allen. She now hosts The Rundown for WBEZ. You should check it out. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for today's pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate having you here. See you next time. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.